Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. There were three ravens sat on a tree down a down, hey down a down. They were as black as they might be with a down. One of them said to his mate, Where shall we our breakfast take? With a down, dairy, 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 down, down. Hello and welcome back to Three Ravens Haunting Season, a month-long celebration of ooks, spooks, the season of the witch and all things chilling and weird. I'm Eleanor Conlon and I'm pouring a glass for a departed friend, leaving it at the edge of my candlelit table and splitting the rest with my co-host Martin Vaughan. Oh, how refreshing. (laughs) Happy Witchtober, dark friends. And we should start this episode by saying a hearty welcome to our new supporters on Patreon, who, as it's haunting season, will enjoy our glowering seasonal greeting. Welcome to the Raven's Nest, Luke and Kate. All hail Luke, dark lord of Patreon. All hail Kate, dark lord of Patreon. As always, if you would like to support the Three Ravens podcast, then do consider signing up to our Patreon, where you'll find loads of exclusive content, including all of our episodes early and ad-free, our stories as text versions, our monthly newsletter, and monthly exclusive episodes, like the Rye Ghost Tour we released just last week. We got very wet recording that as it (laughs) rained pretty much the whole time. But we did actually, verifiably, get haunted. Mm. Genuinely. We encountered a ghost. We really did. And to hear more about it and about the startling number of ghosts in Rye, sign up to the Patreon for $3 a month or $6 a month at patreon.com forward slash Three Ravens podcast. Building on that, actually, next week we will be recording and releasing our new episode of the Three Ravens Film Club, Mm. which this month is all about Robert Eggers' refreshingly ghost. Goatee 2015 folk horror movie, The Witch. (laughs) 
As ever, we're encouraging everyone to watch the same film altogether. This month, it's The Witch. And if you email your thoughts to us at threeravenspodcast at gmail.com by Monday the 23rd, then we'll feature your reflections on the episode. We are also looking for photos of your carved pumpkins for this year. So email them through to threeravenspodcast at gmail.com and we'll share them on our social media. Tag them. Hashtag three ravens haunting season. Then at the end of the month, we'll pick our favourite three and send the three most imaginative carvers a limited edition three ravens haunting season mug. Also, we don't normally ask at the top of our episodes, but it has been a long time since we had a new review on iTunes or Mm, Apple Podcasts. So if you're listening on either of those and if you can, please write us one. We always read them out. And if you use Spotify or another podcast app, then do please drop us some stars or a thumbs up or whatever it may be to help other people to find us. As we spoke about last week, these Haunting Season episodes are a bit different to our usual episode format, featuring two new original ghost stories each week, one from me and one from Eleanor, with our order determined by a coin toss. Once again then, Eleanor, what are you going to call, heads or tails? Today I am going to go for a lovely severed haunted head. Okay, and just for clarity, the coin we have from my little coin collection is a single French franc dating from 1960. Lovely. All right, here we go. It's a Tales. Well then, I guess I'm going first with my story for this week, right then, my love, which will be followed by Eleanor's most excellent story, The Blackberry Pickers. And we'll be back at the end to have a chat about the stories, so stick around. And I'll start spinning my yarn right after this. Heather drew back the veil, noting how thin it had become. Looking out, she saw the street beyond her front hedgerow, quiet for now, and watched as the sunlight slid from the roofs of the row of houses opposite, dropping away into twilight. In the fading glow, glimmering porch lights snapped on, and from their hazy shimmer bleeding out of front rooms, bedrooms, guest rooms, and bathrooms with their frosted frames, she could see that all down the avenue, cars had been parked off the street, stashed in garages out of sight of the bands of children who were shortly set to wander the pavements in ghoulish droves. The knocks would start coming any time now, she thought. Many of the children would be carrying boxes of eggs or bags of flour to throw, or rolls of toilet paper to toss in looping bands over trees and shrubs. In some cases, older children brought tins of paint to splash over lawns and front doors and automobiles. It was a ghastly foreign tradition, she thought, tutting and rubbing her sore knuckles against one another something that had taken root and spread through suburbia like an invasive species. A grey squirrel, she thought, or a Japanese knotweed, a mink or a floating periwort. It was a thing that she saw, but that did not belong, and she did not like it, even if nobody else seemed bothered. She let her net blinds drop, then leaned heavily on her walker, wheeling it slowly towards the curtain cord. As her slippered feet shuffled across the carpet, her knees aching, hips sore, she shook her head slowly, almost imperceptibly so, back and forth, back and forth, 
remembering the year when the road outside the house had been spattered with so much emulsion that Howard had shouted and screamed until he was red in the face. She'd been thankful to Wilf Spencer, who'd come over from the village shop with his pressure washer. He'd blasted all that white gloop right down the drains, and between them they'd calmed Howard down, but the road still looked lighter where it had happened, and every day he would remark on it. I don't know what the world's coming to, he would mutter. Bloody yobs! It had been years since he'd died, of course, but the tarmac still looked stained even after all this time. Some folk welcomed it all, of course. Up at number 27, the Bickertons had done their normal seasonal routine. Every Halloween, they set up orange lights that blinked invitingly, offering a landing strip for travelling craft that Heather thought might well have been visible from space. It would be worse come Christmas, but still, each All Hallows, rain or shine, their house was shrouded in tat. Plastic bats in the windows and cotton wool spider webs fluttering from every awning. Foam gravestones, slate grey and moss green, set into divots in the lawn. Unseemly, she thought, pulling the curtains tight. The Battelles at number 33 weren't much better with their rubber skeleton hung up in the weeping willow out front. Their silver bowl full of tacky, tooth-rotting American candy waiting in their hands when the door was opened. Their many pumpkins stood on the stoop of their home, some carved with Hindu glyphs, others with witches, the outlines of dogs and silhouettes of monstrous faces. Not how things used to be, she said to herself, and not right at all. Moving off from beside the front window, she wheeled the walker along behind the sofa, off beyond Howard's old easy chair. As she passed it, she tapped the chair back with her open palm, just as she'd always done, saying, Right then, my love. It was not a question, she realised, but he used to respond as if it had been. Cup of tea, piece of cake, lunch dinner, news from the paper she might like, details of something from a letter he was sending or from one he'd recently received. She pushed towards the kitchen and shivered. The thermostat beside her read the steady, comfortable temperature of 24 degrees, warm and toasty, just how she liked it. But sometimes the house was shot through with this familiar cold as if it were a breeze that blew in from nowhere, stealing the heat all of a sudden. The thought distracted her. Right then, my love, she repeated, reminding herself of the task at hand. The front wheel of the walker squeaked as it ran over the carpet. She knew it needed oiling, but for one reason or another, she never quite got round to pulling the WD-40 out of the cupboard beneath the sink. It was the same with the hinges on all the doors. Whenever one or other would creak closed or click open, and sometimes when they slammed, she said, half to herself, I suppose I ought to sort them out. But she never had done, and likely never would, because, in all honesty, she found the strange music they made of not insignificant comfort. 
The walker wheel squeaked and squeaked as it turned over the dining room rug. Then, once she was onto the lino of the kitchen, it scratched and scrabbled across the smooth, repeating red and green flower print on the floor. Once she'd reached the counterside next to the cooker, she squeezed lightly on the handle of the walker's brake, and the noise duly stopped. She rubbed her chilly forearms, feeling her soft and tender skin through her cardigan, proud that she had already made the tea and left it on the side to steep and cool. She'd left the cup and saucer to its side too, and then she poured herself a nutty grey portion. She looked at the oily surface of the beverage, but without further need to pause, she drank the whole cupful in a single greedy motion. A little of the bitter liquid had run from the right corner of her lip, where it dribbled down her chin. She wiped the dribble away with the back of her hand and pushed her spectacles back up her nose. Horrid stuff, she thought, pouring another cup. Horrid, but necessary. She surveyed the rest of the items on her dinner tray and worked down her mental checklist. The mirror was already in place, moved out of the downstairs bathroom after lunchtime. She'd eaten the last of the beef stew and dumplings prepared the previous weekend. The candles had likewise been moved into place, and the matchbox was on the tray where she'd left it. All was as it should be, in fact. Thusly satisfied that she had everything she required, she drank a second cup of the sickly lukewarm tea as quick as she might, poured the third and final into the cup, then put the cup and saucer onto the dinner tray. This she then lifted with some difficulty before clipping it to the front of her walker. Would have been cleverer, she thought, suddenly short of breath, to have clipped the tray on first, then loaded it. But she told herself the same thing every day, normally after spilling soup or sending a boiled egg rolling off onto the floor or having witnessed a half-dozen peas slide off her plate and go whizzing hither and thither. Never mind, she said. Doesn't matter, does it? No need to make a fuss. She paused for a moment and listened to the quiet of the house. All was still. With the tray loaded and secured, she squeaked the walker over to the larder door, listening to the rattle of the objects before her and opened the cupboard, reaching down to find the fuse box. Once located, she flipped open the grey plastic lid and clicked the master switch to the off position. The house went dark, and she smiled, thinking that, if nothing else, the profusion of shadows might deter uninvited visitors. She wheeled her clinking, jangling way back to the sitting room and towards the coffee table. There she unloaded her cargo item by item. The wedding photo, Howard's military cross, his wristwatch, the saucer and cup of mushroom tea. She took up the matchbox and put it into the pocket of her cardigan, then lifted and held the packet of salt aloft, sighing for a moment. The vacuuming she'd have to do in the morning would leave her exhausted. Still, needs must. 
Stealing herself, she abandoned her walker, tipped with her one hand and made her way around the sitting room by leaning on the other. She navigated through the dark, using the sofa back first, then the wall, then the mantelpiece, then the old easy chair. She did this slowly, knowing that if she fell, then her brittle bones would likely break and she would be left stranded in the dark. Once finished, she was sweating and out of breath, but satisfied. It wasn't a perfect circle, of course, but it was a fresh packet of salt, and the stream had run and hissed steadily as she'd walked, and now she stood inside it, her slippered feet, cosy and warm. Right then, my love, she said, tapping the chair back, her chest heaving. Right then, my love. Next, she shuffled by the front of the settee, placing the salt down and fiddling in her pocket. Once the matchbox was retrieved, she struck one, lighting the first candle, then another. She waved that match out, then struck a second, continuing this process over and over, careful not to burn her fingertips. It took her a while, but soon all twelve of the candles were lit. She put a flame to the incense, last, watching the heady smoke rising into the room in bluish, drifting curls. She stared at the shimmering tendrils, rising soft and mesmeric into the shapes of tree roots, and she began to feel faint, so was glad to sit down. Breathing deeply for a minute or two, she caught up with herself, her thoughts becoming somewhat obscure. She noted that her skin was tingling, and that the tea sat warm in her belly was doing its work. She reached for the cup and saucer, this time sipping rather than guzzling in great gulps. The stuff did strange things to the digestion, but it proved to be an essential component. Whenever she'd attempted the ritual without it, the whole endeavour had been in vain. As she sat, she listened. She could hear laughter here and there outside in the road and the pop of the occasional firework in the distance. The room was getting colder now, the pipes pinging as they settled, the wood in the staircase offering slight groans as the boards slackened. Somewhere upstairs, she heard a ruffle of the base of a door moving over the carpet, and she smiled to herself as a set of hinges creaked. Bathed as she was in the dancing orange glow of the candles, she looked about the room at the trinkets on the shelves, paintings on the walls, and the dozens of memories of quiet lives well lived. As the joy of recollection welled up within her, she giggled to herself. Then, at the sound of her voice, she felt melancholic all of a sudden. The sound was not the same as it once was, no longer a glossy, rich chuckle. She still liked the girlish, unsteady pitch of it, she reflected, even if it was dry and thin these days. Indeed, the noise reminded her less of the sound of a babbling stream and more of the pages of a closed novel being stroked cover to cover, and something about that idea left her feeling undeniably sad. 
After finishing the tea and setting down the empty cup and saucer, she picked up the mirror and gave herself a good look. She observed the width, depth and breadth of her smile, saw the creamy white of her dentures and regarded the ruddy burnish of the whites of her eyes. She opened them wide, staring at the reflected sparkle of the candlelight's glow. She felt somewhat proud of her appearance. She may look a little tired, but she did not sleep well anymore. Moreover, she'd gone out that morning and had her hair cut, coloured, rollered and blow-dried for the occasion, and once home she'd applied the full complement of foundation, blusher, powder, eyeliner, mascara and lipstick. As she stared into the mirror, however, a funny feeling came over her. A disquieting sensation that her face was not her own. It was a broken face, the feeling said. An old face with drooping cheeks and a double chin and lines on top of lines on top of lines. It's the best I could do, she said, feeling a little defeated. And if not recognisable... It is, at least, respectable. Nobody could realistically expect more than this, she considered, standing the mirror back down on the coffee table. She then looked at the clock on the mantelpiece. There was a smudge on the corner of her spectacles, but she could still identify that it was almost time. With this in mind, she closed her eyes and inhaled the rich, fragrant aroma of the incense. Then she began to sing. They tell me I ought to get around To give romance another play So I've arranged a date this evening And I'm on my way She leaned her head back into the headrest of the settee Humming some of the words that she could not recall Smiling at the memory of how they danced so close together once In the good days all those years ago. To paint the town the way we used to do, I'll dine at the old cafe where we had so much fun. Order cocktails for two instead of the usual one. Behind her, the stairboards cracked and flexed and hinges moaned overhead. Then the door to the bedroom slammed. He always had a temper. Again, though, Heather hummed to herself, half remembering, half forgetting. A lot of folks might think I'm crazy, and maybe they are right. But I'm stepping out with a memory tonight. When she opened her eyes, she noticed that the candles were all out. The hair on her forearms rose, and she felt her heart beating fast. The room was so cold now that she could see her own breath as steam spilling from her mouth, and she picked up the mirror hastily. Her hands were shaking as she peered about the room, her eyes flitting from the real space to the reflection, back and forth, back and forth. She turned to the easy chair, which was in shadow, and smiled. She turned the mirror to it and saw nothing. The seat 
looked empty, but if he was going to be anywhere, then that would be it. She replaced the mirror and reached into the space near where he used to sit. She recalled his many faces, the calm mask resting its eyes for a moment, the curious childlike twinkle when looking out of the front window at a bird in the hedgerow, the serious smile when he would tell her a story she'd heard a dozen times before, his dark eyes shining like polished onyx. She tried not to remember that look of his rage. Her fingers, held out in the air, felt bitterly cold all of a sudden, cold as ice or cold as a grave. I've been missing you, she said, lying. And I hear you, you know, all about the place, I hear you. On the coffee table in front of her, the wedding photo seemed to twitch. I do so want to join you, darling, she said, and will do soon, only... She paused looking at the slight glint of her wedding band on her swollen, arthritic finger. She felt frightened then, not the old fear of long sleeves to hide bruises and swollen cheeks beneath makeup. No, she was frightened because all these years she'd been seeking the answer to the same question every October, over and over, and still nothing, nothing on nothing on nothing. Only my love... You're still here. Why can't you pass on, my dove? Why won't you leave? At this, doors all about the house began to creak and open and close and slam. The wedding photograph on the table before her appeared as if struck, falling face forward, hiding her face and his as if in shame. Now, now, Howard, she said. But the doors kept on slamming, faster and faster, over and over, the frames banging sharp and quick and sudden as the strikes of axe heads into wood piles. Now, now, she repeated, watching on as the cup on the saucer tipped over. Then the objects on the coffee table slid, one after the other, off onto the soft shag of the rug below. She saw them topple, the salt packet, the matches, the watch, the military cross, the photograph and the mirror, which then laid face up at her feet, showing a reflection of the ceiling. She listened to the cacophony of the house, the echoes and the creaks and the thundering bangs. She looked into the space where he ought to be, there in his chair, his eyes twinkling, but he wasn't there, and whatever it was he needed to say, it seemed he could not say it. It was then that she felt him, his large hand and strong fingers wrapping around her thin wrist and squeezing. Thin as bird bones, she thought feeling the icy grip tighten. Please, she said, her voice almost a whimper. The face of the mirror at her feet then split and cracked under the pressure of his heavy step. She wanted to beg him then, to plead, but she could not. Her mouth had been hushed as Howard had grasped her and leaned down pressing his lips onto hers, staying the noises in her throat. 
Leaning heavily on the chair's arms, moving as quickly as she might, she then stood, her knees swollen and sore, her hips cracking, and she shuffled one step backwards, then another, the legs of her chair breaking through the ring of salt. With that, the noises of the house stopped. The candles guttered briefly, then sprang back into flame, and the room, thankfully, felt much less cold. Heather rested her hand on the sofa back, inched her way forward, and grabbed her stroller. Once it was within her grip, she then wheeled it on, her heart thundering, thinking to herself that there would always be next year. As she passed it, she then tapped the chair back, saying it like a mantra almost to herself. Right then, my love. Right then, my love. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I suppose I should never have gone to Moorstone if a slight indiscretion during the previous march had pursued me any less relentlessly. Small towns have long enough memories for a well-timed advertisement to feel like safe passage from prison. I was oppressed by the disapproving stares of Weatherbury, the imperceptible seconds of silence in the greengrocers and the cocoa temperance rooms. The position, miles from any sign of civilization answered my purposes exactly, for I wanted to bury myself. The house was inaccessible by road from the direction of my arrival. Instead, an uneven path led through the heathland surrounding it, scratched into the chalky soil like a wound. It was a dim and airless afternoon in October, with a heaviness which chilled my ears while pressing a damp hot line from my back into my blouse. The bracken was on the turn, the roots of the trees hidden in its rust-coloured fronds, as though they were wading in dirty water. Brambles clustered in discontented snarls everywhere, studded with fat and overripe fruit. Little pools, half hidden in mud and deceptively deep, glimmered malevolently from behind scrubby undergrowth. It would have inspired no dread at all in a person of little imagination. But I was not such a person. At that time, I had romantic fantasies rooted in the serialised novels I enjoyed in Harper's New Quarterly, and the architecture of my daydreams was decidedly gothic. The Underwood typewriter strapped to my side bumped my hip, hard enough to bruise. It was all my fortune, that electric typewriter, and I'd been my ticket of leave. 
The position at Moorstone was for an experienced typist, particularly a young lady used to living in town. I tentatively provided references, sure that my letter of application would not be accepted, but the references had never been requested and I'd been sent for. Packing of my possessions had been almost a joy, and the only link I retained to the past was Solomon, the Irish wolfhound left me by my brother George. I thought there might be a difficulty about Solomon, but my new employer had welcomed him. It was a comfort to me to have his great presence at my other hip. With the support of the dog and the typewriter, I felt I might become anybody. I passed nobody except two soldiers on my way through the heath. One had a turned-up nose and rosy cheeks and smiled at me. I was conscious of the wet starch curling creases into my blouse and only nodded distantly at him. On rounding a bend in the path, I had my first sight of Moorstone, still some distance away and tucked into the dark trees like a model of a house. It was of heavy grey stone and absolutely surrounded by heathland. The house itself seemed almost overcast, like the frowning sky overhead. I felt it to be the hiding place I'd hoped for, and quickened my step. I was upon them before I had any warning of it, the blackberry pickers. They sang as they worked, an eerie, wordless tune, somehow in harmony and yet in opposition to itself. As I approached, they stopped their song abruptly and stared at me. Solomon growled at them as though they'd threatened him. He meant nothing by it. He growled at the soldiers, too. I coloured, angry with my dog for embarrassing me, feeling like an intruder. I wanted to urge the singers not to stop on my account, but I understood that their song was private, not intended for me. I nodded again and walked on, dragging Solomon by his collar. Two of the blackberry pickers returned to their work, but the last did not. She stood a little apart from the others. Her dress was in an old-fashioned style, curiously well-made for her position and the work she was doing. A made-over gift from some charitable lady, I supposed. Her hair was very dark brown, and her lips full, as though she'd been biting them. Her look was unfriendly. When I moved on and looked back over my shoulder, she was still standing and watching me. I expect you like a cup of tea, Miss Birch, said Mrs. Blakemore, Moorstone's housekeeper. Goodness, isn't he large? He'll have to go in the boot room. We haven't had a dog here before. I was surprised. Moorstone was just the sort of place that would be ideal to keep dogs. But perhaps Mr. Newland didn't care for hunting. Solomon was safely disposed and Mrs. Blakemore showed me to my room at the top of the house. Her knees made little crunching sounds as she climbed the stairs, as though she were kicking through dry leaves. After I'd tidied myself, I was summoned almost at once by Mr. Newlin. I thought I might take tea with Mrs. Blakemore and so establish a few facts about my employer, but the cups were laid in his library. I presented myself a little shyly, for I'd expected a man much older than myself and was discomposed to discover he was only thirty or so. It's rather different work to your former employment, I realise, he said. I was surprised, for his advertisement had led me to believe that he would want notes typed for a book he was writing, 
and I'd been engaged for a very similar purpose by Hartfield and Poole lawyers. I mean the subject, Mr Newlin continued eagerly, springing up from his chair and nearly knocking over his teacup. He rummaged in his desk, and I had the opportunity of observing his figure, which I thought difficult to find fault with. There's an enormous fashion at the present time for just the sort of hateful rot I intend to disprove in my latest work. A sort of obsession with spiritualists, as they call themselves, and the grotesque showmanship of the stage mediums poisoning the well of progress. He continued in this vein for some minutes, eventually showing me a thick and disordered bundle of handwritten papers, which I discovered to be the manuscript of his book. The thing appeared to be a vindication of reason and science in the face of the evil and pervasive folk customs of the British Isles, and the responsibility they must bear for backwards and anti-intellectual thought. Apparently, it was not intended to be either amusing or brief. I'd rather hoped that my new employer might be a writer of the volume novels I enjoyed reading, and thought it odd for somebody so young to have no romantic notions at all. But you've come from Weatherbury, Miss Birch, Mr Newland said eagerly. You must tell me everything that's going on there, everything. Have the committees for public health adopted the latest advancements in sanitation? Is there a railway station within the town itself? I had not the heart to tell him that Weatherbury was a poor backwater. It was clear that he was so out of the way here that he considered it to be almost metropolitan. At length it came out that he was longing to move away from Moorstone, but there was some sort of difficulty about the entailment of the property. But this, he said, leaning over me and tapping his manuscript, may be our means out of here, Miss Birch. He was near enough, and his breath murmured across my neck above my collar. His excitement was infectious. I wondered if we would take dinner together, being such a small household he excused himself. I found myself in bed early. The eaves room I'd been given was painted in a smart dark grey and had a view of the heath. I'd fallen into a sound sleep when a noise woke me in the dark. It drifted up to me, as though it came from below my window. As I gradually surfaced from sleep, it seemed to me like the song of the blackberry pickers I'd heard on the heath. It was too late for such work, so I dragged myself from bed to look out. There was nothing there. Only the moon like a cake of soap in the black porcelain washbowl of the sky. When I went down the next morning to take breakfast with Mrs Blakemore in her room, she was leaning out of the window and speaking to a man who I presumed to be the gardener. It's not right, the gardener insisted. Couldn't be children. What children would there be all the way out here? It's come again, I tell you. It's not right. Foxes, said Mrs Blakemore. The gardener said something scornful. I made a slight sound to indicate my presence. There now. Miss Birch won't want to hear any of your superstitious nonsense, Mrs Blakemore said, clearly relieved that I had arrived. What has happened? I asked. Only a bit of mess on the path, Mrs Blakemore said. The wind might have done it, or a fox. I stood next to her and looked out of the window. I realised that the room must be directly below my own, 
for it was the same view out onto the heath and the gravel path running around the house which I'd seen the last night from the window, illuminated by the moon. There were blackberries everywhere on the path, squashed and spread. I saw that they were on the window too, as though they'd been spat from a sizzling pan in wet, syrupy gobbets. It looked as though they'd been forcibly thrown at the house and the path next to it. Right up the wall it is, the gardener said stubbornly. Almost up to the roof. Foxes never did that. It was a dirty night then, Mrs Blakemore said. I thought that it had seemed rather still when the dream of the song had wakened me, but said nothing. Mrs Blakemore and I shared rashes of bacon and companionable chit-chat, while the gardener mulishly raked the path and rubbed down the window, looking in meaningfully at Mrs Blakemore the whole time. When I returned upstairs to wash my hands and straighten my hair, I saw that a few splattered berries had reached as far as my own window. I fell into an easy routine over the following days. I got on well with Mrs Blakemore, but most of my hours were spent in the library with Mr Newland. He wrote by hand while I typed, but he took frequent pauses in his work, which deterred mine by reason of his pacing about the room, thinking aloud, and addressing me with his theories as though I had been a seminar of his peers. Do you not think it ludicrous that modern children are still taught that there is a soul, separate to the functioning human body, which may continue independent of it after the thing has rotted away? His interruption had caused me to type a sentence incorrectly. I removed the sheet and began again. I believe the notion to be of some comfort to those left behind, I said. Surely it's a rather horrible thought than a comfort to think of those who have departed continuing on. He paused in his habitual pacing and his gaze fell on a picture, propped on the small piano in the darkest corner of the library. The face in it looked slightly familiar to me, but I could not think where from. One photograph looks rather like another in shadow. It might have been anybody. Who is that lady? I asked. My wife, he said. I must have made some sort of sound. I do not know. I felt suddenly warm behind my knees and under my arms. I did not know, I said. Oh, that is to say, my late wife, he added carelessly. The strange relief I felt did not prevent me murmuring that I was very sorry. Oh, don't say so for convention, said he. You did not know her and I, well, at times I wished I had not. It was a shocking remark, and not the sort of thing gentlemen usually said to ladies who were supposed to frown on such sentiments. I did not know what to say to it, although I confess to myself I did not exactly regret his words. She, Ida, was sentimental and silly, he said. We were not suited, and her folly and selfishness caused her death by misadventure. He gave me a look as if to say, You and I, we would not do such ridiculous things, giving me a delicious sense of being part of a conspiracy with him. Naturally, I was curious enough to ask Mrs Blakemore about it over tea. She told me the story of Mrs Newland's death, which was quite startling enough to have reached Weatherbury, although I didn't remember hearing anything about it. She was a flighty one, Mrs. Blakemore said, jumping at shadows and throwing salt over her shoulder. She would have hated that dog of yours. She thought dogs were all beasts of the devil. It was an awful end for her. 
Mrs. Blakemore related how the late Mrs. Newlyn had become obsessed by a local legend concerning a ring of ancient stones on the heath, in the centre of which one might summon up something on a particular night and under particular conditions. Determined to go through with her strange ceremony despite a vicious storm, Mrs. Newlyn had tripped and struck her head against one of the stones, causing her to fall unconscious into one of the many little pools of water. The blow might have killed her or the water, creeping into her lungs while she was unconscious. I said that Mr. Newland did not seem much saddened by her passing. Oh, well, he's a cold fish, Mrs. Blakemore said. Never shows any enjoyment of ordinary things. Can't bear any sort of fun. He doesn't believe in Christmas itself, imagine! Mrs. Blakemore's opinion of our employer did not match my view of him at all. He talked so eagerly of his own dreams, for a future in which all beings were educated, rational and dignified. We dined together with increasing frequency, and the occasions afforded me more pleasure than I'd expected from a repetitive job in a remote and lonely place, more perhaps than I felt in my heart that I deserved. "'You look very well this evening, Miss Birch,' said Mr. Newlyn, when I appeared in a new striped blouse. The conversation was energising as a fresh and windy walk. We talked of steamboats and Mr. Booth's vacuum cleaner. I was able to put him straight on a few matters concerning the electric typewriter, which seemed to give him pleasure. I've read that in Germany, a kind of rigid air balloon has been invented which is capable of making longer flights than have ever been possible before. Imagine flight, Miss Birch seeing the world from so very far above. The weather outside, as though in opposition to our talk of machines and lofty ambitions, was wild and furious, rain lashing against the glass and making it shake in its frame. The reflections of the dinner candles bobbed like the lanterns of battered fishing boats in a perilous sea. Flickering beeswax, I thought, showed the strong features and curling brown hair of Mr. Newland to a greater advantage than the electric light he would have far preferred. "'I'd like to show you something,' he said when we'd finished eating. To my surprise, he ignored the open door to the library and led me up the stairs instead. Just behind him, I was able to watch the back of his neck. He took me along the first landing to the back of the house and opened the door to a chamber. I realised with a thrill that it was his bedroom. I could not help but think of the impropriety of my being there and glanced fearfully over my shoulder. The household was quiet, Mrs Blakemore having retired to her room with strong tea and a three-volume novel as she did every evening. Adding to my sense of nervous excitement, Mr Newland blew out the candle he was carrying, leaving us in darkness. Oh, for gaslights to dim and raise at will, he said with mocking mournfulness. Then he took my hand and guided me over to his window. Look, he said. I looked, and all was blackness except for the very far away lights of a town, like faint coals in the black grate of the moorland. I love to look at it, he said. It doesn't feel so distant to me at night while I can see the lights and imagine all the people there busy, making progress. I ventured to suggest that the view from the other side of the house over the heath was also rather beautiful. Not my mind, he said. A bleak, blank hole with no future, 
Not a place for me. Or for you. He had turned towards me. Our heads were very close together. I could just see his silhouette through the thick shadows, and it seemed to me as though he was leaning towards me, almost as though he could not help himself. Something slammed hard into the window. I half screamed and stepped back for him while he fumbled with a matchbox and lit the candle again. There, it's nothing, he said, frowning at the sight of my face and my trembling hands. Bird has flown into the window, that's all. Look. There was a dark stain on the outside of the glass, as though something had indeed thrown itself hard against the window. I was breathing hard, shocked, and conscious of a desire for him to put his arms around me and tell me it was quite all right now. Mr Newlin, however, seemed to recollect that having a young lady in his bedroom was not quite as it should be. He removed himself to the mantelpiece, putting a decent distance between us. The torments of living in the countryside, he said. In my own room I undressed in a kind of fever. I was fitful in my bed and kept waking from half-dreams of Mr. Newlin bending over me and saying tenderly that this was not a place for either of us. His face muddled in my dreams with the faces of Mrs. Blackmore, the gardener, the young soldier on the heath, and the blackberry pickers who'd stared at me. The day was dreary, yet bright when I woke, the sky the colour of spoiled milk. It was too much for my sleepy eyes. To shield them from its glare, I put up my hand, which seemed dark with something I could not make out. Ink, perhaps, from the pages I'd typed. I was wrenched into wakefulness when I saw that the dark stain spread from my fingertips down my wrist and under the cuff of my nightgown. The other hand was the same. I started up in bed and realised that the sheets were smeared too, with something purple-black which covered them almost completely. Stumbling over to the wash glass, I was horrified to see that my face too was stained, painted with purple and red as though oozing from monstrous wounds. I could not think what had got onto me, until I became aware of the sweet, tart smell. It was the juice of blackberries, and the bed was ruined. I approached the subject awkwardly with Mrs. Blakemore at breakfast, after scrubbing my skin and rinsing my hair of the pinkish juice. The pot of thick blackberry jam on the table was as appealing to me as taking a mouthful of tar. The affair with the blackberries, I said. What? Oh, I'd forgotten. It was clear from her face that she had not. Something, something similar has happened, I said, and told her of it. Good heavens, she said. Did you uh, leave the window open? I did not think I had, as it had been stormy. She looked somewhat sick, and as if she would rather not speak. But then she said, such things have happened once before. The previous young lady who held your position was much disturbed by it. I was more disturbed by that news. I'd not known that I was a replacement. But nothing like that happened for a while then, Mrs. Blakemore said. So we put it down to the weather and the peculiarities of the place. Of course, John Melston would have it as something else, but he's never listened a sense. What? What would he have it that it is? Oh, otherworldly goings-on, she said reluctantly. 
He's lived here all his life, man and boy, and they're silly hereabouts in the old way. Otherworldly? Do you mean... I could not finish. It sounded so ridiculous to say a ghost, a phantom. Mr. Newlin would laugh outright at the very idea. The fraudulent behaviour of those who claimed to communicate with the other side was a favourite target for his derision. I'll have the bed linen seen to, Mrs. Blakemore said firmly, indicating that she would rather close the subject. One thing, Mrs. Blakemore, I said. Did these things only start again after I had come? We were dancing as delicately around the subject as two matrons discussing an eight-month wedding. Well, I suppose so, said she. There was a clatter as the knife she'd been using to butter her slice of toast pierced through the bread and scraped the plate below. I was perturbed by it. I kept to the house and did not take Solomon out onto the heath. He grew angry and barked excessively. I felt that the land itself did not want me there. I began to wonder whether there had been anything in the late Mrs. Newland's idea that something might be out there. One dingy afternoon, Mr. Newlin had gone for a long walk by himself, and I had nothing to type, so I wandered the house. I indulged myself by looking at all the books in the library. They were off-putting, having titles with multiple clauses and no illustrations. I looked instead at the photographs on the piano. There was a stern couple who must be the parents of Mr. Newlin, for they had the same determined set of the jaw and the photograph of the former Mrs. Newlin, who he had spoken so dispassionately about. Without his presence, I could examine it properly. Her hair in the photograph seemed a very dark colour, although perhaps not quite black, and was worn in loose, old-fashioned ringlets. I was taken by her full lips and bold stare, and knew then where I had seen her before. It was the youngest blackberry picker, had watched me all the way to the house. I did not know what to think. I'd seen her. She, she was alive. Thoughts and theories danced through my mind, worthy of one of Mr. Newland's philosophers. It must be her sister, of course, which made sense of the unfriendly looks towards me, a strange woman going to the house. Perhaps she had not died, but was mad and wandered the heath with the lower classes instead of keeping to the house, and he said that she was dead for the shame of it. Well, she deserted him, but why then would she keep so close to Moorstone? I could not explain it to myself, and all my confusion was bound up with a growing sense of horror at the attacks on the house and on my own person by the almost violently strewn blackberries. There was a sound outside swell of wordless song on the other side of the library's bay window. I turned with the photograph still in my hands and saw its double there. He was smiling and held a basket of ripe blackberries in her hand. As I watched her, she delicately picked one out and tossed it at the window, striking it with a squelch. I knew it was the same woman. The ringlets of hair, the full upturned mouth. She seemed no longer to care that I was standing there, as though she'd done that which she came for. She turned and began to walk away. I was certain then, in that moment, that I would not have this, that I myself would debunk this mystery. I would make Mr. Newland's house a place of reason for his sake, 
untroubled by nocturnal visitations and the childish hurling of fruit like a Hallow's Eve trick. I would find the truth and I would deal with it. I ran from the library, catching up my outdoor coat and thrusting my arms into it and out of the front door of the house. I could see her on the heath, further away than she ought to be. I ran a few steps after her and she turned and looked over her shoulder, seeming to invite me on. She was still singing, the same low, tuneless song the blackberry pickers had been singing on the day of my arrival. I ran on. The afternoon was drearily dark now. The sky streaked with deep blue and rust, but I could see her form ahead of me, almost seeming to carry a light within it. Then I lost sight of her. Where are you? I shouted. Come back! I'd waded into a thicket, and the briars caught at my coat and skirt. Thorns pricked my calves and scratched my hands as I ploughed forward. My feet slipped beneath me, trampling fallen berries into slick, treacherous liquid. I felt a hand on my back, firm and determined, pushing me forwards. I lost my footing and fell, splashing down into a muddy standing pool. Thrashing desperately, I tried to turn over, not wanting to be face down with her behind me. As I grasped for something to steady me, I saw through the overgrown bramble bushes a ring of stones, mossy and broken. She was standing over me, holding her basket. With a triumphant smile, she brought her foot down onto my chest, pushing me down into the water. Her weight was awful, and I struggled in vain against it. She reached into the basket and began to pull out handfuls of blackberries which she forced into my mouth and up my nose, blocking my nostrils as she held me in the water. I tried to scream through the thick, rotten fruit, certain that I would be suffocated if I were not drowned in the pool. Her face above me was terrible with the certainty of her victory. I could not think her to be a living being, not now. Dark patches crowded in on my vision. Suddenly, the weight was gone from my chest. I heard a raw scream, then ferocious barking. There was something else on top of me, growling and licking at my face. It was Solomon, my own Solomon, there in the pool, dripping water from every coarse hair. She would have hated that dog of yours, Mrs. Blakemore had said. Miss Birch! Miss Birch! He was there, stamping through the brambles, his face as pale as the sheets of his manuscript. I could not see her. Not quite, he said, when he had helped me from the pool and onto firmer ground to sit. Or I, I almost could. I had a sense. A sense. Although it was I who had nearly been killed, it was he who seemed ill, almost as shaken as though he had seen the atrocities of war. I suppose that to have his belief in the non-existence of all inexplicable phenomena so roundly overturned was more of a shock to him than it was to me. He had never known the extent of my fanciful notions. Solomon lay at our feet, and it seemed natural for Mr Newland's arm to find its way around me, for him to softly wipe the berries from my lips. A month later, pale sun broke through the clouds as the last of the boxes was packed. There was not a great deal, as Mr Newlin had declared that he felt no attachment to any of it, and would happily hear of its sale at auction without caring what it went for. The news from the lawyer regarding the end of Moorstone's entail had put us all in a holiday mood. Mr Newlin wanted everything new, and 
I no longer saw any reason to disagree with him. Well, Mrs. Newlin, said Mrs. Blakemore, that's the last of them. We've been packing the books. Mr. Newlin will want to see them loaded onto the cart himself, I said. Loading took much of the morning, and after a last lunch of game pie and sweet wine, we left Moorstone behind. It isn't much of a honeymoon for you, he said, as we put ourselves into the last cart with Solomon, of whom Gilbert had grown rather fond. There was still a wicked thrill in calling him Gilbert. But Paris will be, I said. After we'd settled into our new house, we intended to visit the Exposition Universelle to marvel at the innovations. And this is an adventure too, after all. It is, he said. Perhaps one day we shall fly around the world and see how very small it looks from the sky. We shall do anything we like, I said. The cart moved off. When I looked back, Moorstone already seemed insubstantial, a house in a dream from another time and place. On the heath, the blackberry pickers were visible in the distance. There were more of them today, men and women and even a few children, for whom it was likely life would always remain simple. Their song was a bee-like hum, blurred and indistinct. In their midst, there was a single figure not bending down to gather berries. Her hands were black with fruit and her mouth too, open in a never-ending scream of rage. But I soon forgot all about it, for such experiences have no place in a rapidly advancing world. Oh, thank you so much, Eleanor. I love that story. And thank you, Martin. A very <laughs> unusual protagonist. Oh, yeah. Well, I think it's a bit tricky. Like, I can write Edwardian ghost stories and perhaps even Victorian ghost stories until the cows come home um, with male protagonists. It's a very familiar kind of story to me. The challenge for me is always to try and think of an interesting angle or an interesting way mm. in. And so with this one, I was trying to think about what am I actually afraid of? And one of the things that I'm actually afraid of is old age. Yes. Um, I, I think old age is scary and, and dementia, that idea of losing your mind as you get older, I think is, is also really scary. Um, I think abuse is really, really scary, particularly domestic abuse where you feel like you can't escape. Um, and I also thought it was really interesting to try and have an older woman as a protagonist because... It's very rare in society that older women have agency, that, that, yeah, that they're allowed to be heroes. Yeah, and she's got so much agency that she's planned the whole thing, from the mushroom tea down to have, getting her hair specially done for this event, which she you get the sense she sort of wants and invites, but when it happens, she doesn't necessarily like it. Or her memories, her happy memories of her husband have been somehow twisted by death. Well, yeah, I mean, for me, it was this idea of the last thing that she could possibly want is to be stuck in the afterlife as a ghost with him. Yes. And so she's trying her very best so, to make him happy mm. and to encourage him to move on. Yeah. Move on to the next phase. But he, sort of, he clings on, doesn't it? Yeah. The, the hand on the arm again. The yeah. MR James touch. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's going to be a common theme, I have to say, in my ghost stories. <laughs> the horrible the haunting touch. season. <laughs> Meanwhile, yours, I mean, the names kind of gave it away to me, Weatherbury in particular. You're writing in Hardy's Wessex. Uh, yes, it is set in Hardy's Wessex. Mm. Um, good, <laughs> good spot there. So why? Why? What inspired you? I mean, obviously, Thomas Hardy inspires you at the best of times. The, the but... work of Thomas Hardy mm. and um, just the the countryside in autumn and how it can be obviously so beautiful on a golden day with the sun shining and all the colours it's beautiful yeah. but half the time it's sort of dim and airless yes. in early autumn and you get that those kind of the dirty milk skies yeah. and it's slightly too humid <laughs> and I don't know there's something sinister about that sort of atmosphere oh for sure and I, I think I was, I was thinking about blackberries which everybody likes and mm. are everywhere in the hedgerows in early autumn and I was looking at them thinking well they're not they're lovely how can mm. we turn them horrible into something not into lovely. something not very nice yeah. yeah I always think that's quite fun in a haunting story where a, a very inoffensive article can be quite horrible yeah 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 so I was very interested in a, in a few threads in your story one of them was the, the female gaze i.e. she likes him and there's sort of weighing him up, assessing bits of his body, parts of his qualities, catching him in the right light, sort of seeing him like as an object. He's objectified in the story, which I think is really fun. I also obviously noticed the dog, that classic Eleanor Conlon dog. I don't dog. know what dog you mean. <laughs> <laughs> the classic feature of your stories. But I also like the idea of this house as in one direction there's progress, in one mm. direction there's the past, and it's a kind of dot in time in the bricks where you're having this experience that's a little bit like Rebecca, Daphne du Maurier. Oh, yeah, Where, you, you know, you've got the, the previous that's Mrs. That. De Winter or his previous, mm. he, his previous wife haunting her. The long shadow of the old wife. Yeah. yeah. But, but you took most of the choices from those kinds of stories and those kinds of ideas and turn them into positives rather than negatives. You know, you, you, you didn't look for the dark, horrific, tragic ending. Actually, you look for the happy ending. Yeah, it's actually wedding. like a love story, yeah. which happens to have a horrible, vengeful, fruit-throwing ghost <laughs> in it. Um, but, you know, um, I was interested in the idea of actually the the kind of, well, the things we love so much on Three Ravens, the yeah. old ways and the folk traditions and the longing for a simpler life and, mm. and all those things that are tensions in Hardy's fiction. I was interested in those sort of being a bad thing in yeah. this story and actually something quite negative. Yeah. So progress and machines and, you know, the Universal Exposition all being these really exciting happy, positive things, and then the older ways being sort of dark and lacking in education, which isn't how I feel at all. So <laughs> no, no, no. It's sort of the total opposite to the way I would think. Well, I think they're good stories for the two of us because they're both like forcing us to stretch out of our comfort zones as in to, to try doing things that we wouldn't normally do. Absolutely. Wow. And that's Excellent. one of the most fun things about storytelling. Yeah, it? it's true. That's true. Right, well, should we talk communications? Yes, let's. Okay, well, as always, thank you so much to everybody who has been engaging with us and sharing the podcast this week. As an indie podcast, we are entirely reliant on others to help us grow, so every little bit really does help. Once again, please, please review us if you haven't already. We're working on attracting sponsors at the moment to help us buy books and go on trips and so on. So anything you can do to help 
would be very much appreciated. It really would. And thank you also to everyone who sent in entries to our Winter Folklore Card Design Contest. Mm. We had a flurry of last-minute entries and we're currently enjoying looking through them all right now. And we will put the final results in before the start of Season 3. Now, in terms of our likers, commenters and super sharers this week, we need to say a special thank you to Donna, Eric, Mariana, Tammy and Charles on Facebook, Tea Tales Travel, Knitted Book, Worm, Dottie Stella, Rachel Creates and Visiting North Yorkshire on Instagram and Haunted Trails, Paco, Clarissa, Indie Catley and Mystic Moon on Twitter. The places to join in the gronking with all our other social media ravens are, of course, facebook.com forward slash three ravens podcast, Instagram at three ravens podcast and on Twitter via three ravens pod. And do please send thoughts, feedback, pumpkin photos and reflections on the witch for our October film club episode to three ravens podcast at gmail.com. And of course, if you would like to support the podcast and gain access to tons of exclusive content, including our episodes early and ad free, our stories as text versions and much much more please sign up to our patreon for three dollars a month or six dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast we'll be back next monday with two more tales of terror and before then on thursday we'll have our brand new dying arts bonus episode all about corn dollies so do give that a listen in the meantime while our spooky little ghosties have gone that way we'll go this way and remember Don't whistle till you're out of the woods. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Eleanor Conlon and Ben Harbour. And our logo is by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, produced by me, Martin Fawkes. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman Such hounds, such hawks and such lean man With a down, derry, 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 down, down Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.